Hello and welcome to Sobertown. I am King 13 with you today on this wonderful world that we're going to run into, into sobriety. Um, I just want to give a shout out to the I Am Sober community, which is a free app you can download that counts your alcohol-free days. It's a really great community for anybody looking to find some supportive friends and also to be able to post your thoughts um, as you go through your journey. And also we have Sobertown.com, which is a website, which is a one-stop shop for everything to do with sobriety. Um, check out Todd's Tools. It's a great resource. He talks about everything to do with the brain and the body and also things that are going to help you just maintain your sobriety. And I'm very, very excited today because I have a wonderful, wonderful young woman who I have watched and um, have followed and she has graciously said, yes, she will talk to me today. She is from the I Am Sober community and she also has a lot to do with Discord, which is another place where you can also find friends and talk to each other. And I just want to say a really warm welcome to Ashley Bear 9 Good morning. How are you? Good morning. Thank you so much for having me. I'm really, really happy to be here. And I'm very excited to have a conversation with you this morning. Yeah, look, I'm really excited. I really am because you are a young woman who has so much to offer, contributes so much, and you really, really put yourself out there. You give 110% into the sober community, and I know you're a busy, you're a busy woman. You have a very successful career, and again, you know, sometimes Ash, like me, I was a career person too, and a lot of the people that I have interviewed and spoken to are really highly intelligent, professional people that other people would never think that we had an issue with alcohol. Do you, mm -hmm. do you agree? Oh, I completely agree. And I think that in so many ways, kind of being that person that is successful and then defining ourselves by that, we then look past some of our issues and our problems ourselves, let alone other people. And so you know, drinking was just something I did. It was never a problem, right? It was kind of how the way the way that I looked at it and the way that others looked at it as well. And so I would definitely, definitely agree with that. And um, I think so much of this journey too has been moving past that and, and past, you know, defining ourselves by our successes um, and really just, you know, seeing things for, for really what they are. Yeah, and this would define, you know, it can... I don't know. It's defined for me is just too much of a box. People are just, yes. they're, they're made up of so many things and I'm, I'm not one for labels and I'm certainly not one to judge anybody. But what I found was I thought I really need to find people that are like me that I can relate to. Well, mm -hmm. it did, at the end, it didn't really matter because what we all related to when I got onto the community was I had a problem with alcohol, just like the other people that were there. And that was enough to make me realise that this is where I need to be. But anyway, we can talk a bit more about that later. Let's talk about you. And, and you can start anywhere you like, but tell us how you got to be where you are today. Sure. Um, so I'll give you a little bit, yeah, of my history and kind of my backstory. Um, I won't start when I was born, <laughs> but I will start with a little <laughs> bit of a background. And so... I'd say overall for me, you know, I kind of grew up in um, a good family. I have, uh, you know, my mom and dad, they're married and still together. I have my brother and sister, each of us just one year apart. So um, 
and we have a really, really good relationship. Like I have a beautiful relationship with my brother and sister. I consider them my best friends. Um, the community in which I grew up with um, in was, you know, a fairly prosperous neighborhood. There's a lot of, you know, well-to-do and successful people, if you will, though um, I define success a little bit different now, a year into sobriety or almost a year into sobriety, but I can get into that later. Um, and uh, yeah, so everything for me was, was pretty good, I think. Um, I did have, I think, my first drink around the age of 13. So I guess it was, I was fairly young. And I remember kind of that first time that I had that drink was the first time I say that I ever felt normal. And so for me, I, I've always been, I still am a very, very sensitive person. Um, I take on everyone's emotions um, and I have a very busy mind. And so my mind is constantly, constantly going. And that first time that I drank alcohol was just like, wow, I think this is what everyone else feels like. Like, this is that normal feeling. Those emotions really quieted down. My mind quieted down. And I could really just kind of be present in that moment. And I think mm -hmm. in one of my posts, I refer to it as, and this is common language, I think, in the AA community. Um, and I had what I call like an allergic reaction to it. And so I loved it. I loved the feeling of it. Um, but at the same time, kind of some of the issues that I went into drinking with really were just exacerbated by alcohol. And then I started trying to deal with a lot of these issues while actively drinking, which uh, I refer to as trying to invent a parachute while you're skydiving. It's just, just not possible. Mm -hmm. um, and, and uh, one of the things with my family is that so we kind of overuse the word I love you. And in the sense that like, we're very liberal with it, right? If we're leaving yeah. the house, I love you, hang up the phone, I love you. Um, which, which was great. And it sounds like a great way to express something, but expression wasn't really encouraged when it came to negative emotions. And so I was always told and being a very sensitive person, you know, I felt very sad if someone else was sad or like, I felt these negative emotions. I really took them on in a strong way. And my dad specifically, not that he ever had the negative intention to do this, but wanted to really make me like a strong and resilient woman. And so he would always say like, you know, don't be overly sensitive. If I cried, like, don't cry, don't cry over this, you know? And so, and the other thing that he would always say is um, emotions are a choice. Like you choose to be angry or you could choose to be happy. Like, what do you want to be? Do you want to be sad or do you want to be happy? And so of course I want to be happy. <laughs> so I was always trying to choose happiness but that meant that I could never feel or express any other emotions and uh, that was obviously of course you know very very challenging for me um, and then in terms of the community that I grew up in um, as I had mentioned you know fairly prosperous and community with a lot of successful people and when I was kind of looking back at things in preparation for this podcast, I realized a lot about how drinking was prevalent in our community, for sure. There was a lot of people that drank and a lot of people with drinking problems, but it was never talked about. Like in this community, yeah. you didn't talk about problems. People were successful because they're executives at technology companies or they're agents or they're this or they're that. They didn't have problems. They were successful. And so... And I remember like specific stories kind of um, 
uh, remember, I can look back on certain moments and think like, like, wow, that 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 adult or that parent was like wasted when they interacted with me and they're kind of rude to me. And I can see that now. But at that time, I didn't. And even when I mentioned it to other parents or my parents, no one ever explained that to me. So you can kind of see how some of these experiences in the community I grew up in don't feel emotion, don't show emotion, don't talk about your problems like this is the way that I grew up. Um, and then the other component to that was also there was a very kind of competitive nature to everything. You always had to be the best of the best. And I wanted to be the best. Like I never did anything kind of, you know, um, in a small way. I needed to always do it, like go all the way with it. And I think that's typical sometimes of an addictive personality as well, where it's like it's all or nothing. And I I've always gave everything my all. And so like um, a few examples for me is that like, Growing up, I uh, got into swimming. I did competitive swimming. And so, like, I was swimming in the pool one time. I remember there was a coach for our uh, synchronized swimming team. And she had recognized me as a strong swimmer and spoke to my dad and asked me to try out for the team. And so I, they had it in synchronized swimming kind of four tiers. One, two, three, four. Four was the top and four was where you would train for the Olympics. And when I uh, tried out, I made it into tier three. And simply because of my age, I was a very strong swimmer, but I was too young to enter into the tier four program. And so that was like, you know, I didn't want to just swim. I wanted to compete nationally. And then same thing with in high school, they had an arts program. I tried out for the vocal program. I made it. I didn't want to just, you know, sing in class. I needed to be a part of the choir that also competed internationally. And so I entered into that. And then even writing for me had always been something I was strong with not necessarily my grammar but I was always very a, a very creative writer had a very strong imagination and I remember um kind of being young and um being offered to co-write a children's book with a, a very famous author and um and I say all these things in one way to show you like for me, it was always about like doing everything to its fullest. But also mm -hmm. I tell you these things because for me, the one thing that overshadowed everything else was wanting to fit in. And by being good at these things or strong in these things, as much as I was told to always win and, you know, be the best, it didn't help me in the aspect of fitting in. And I really just wanted friends and I really just wanted to fit in. And so all of these opportunities, I eventually like I left. I walked out of swimming one time and said, I'm never coming back. I, I skipped choir and vocal practice and like to hang out with friends in high school. And I said no to I was a very young child when the, when the writing thing was offered. But I cried and cried to my dad saying, like, no, I don't want to do this until finally they kind of let up on me. And it was because like. I didn't want to be made fun of. I didn't want the other kids to say something because I was different. I literally just wanted to fit in. Um, yeah, so, it's, um, it, it's, it's, it's hard because there's a lot of expectations there from yourself and then there's yeah. a learned behaviour from your parents that are saying, you know, and look, a lot of this is about presenting and the image. It sounds like your community was very much like that. If you look the right way, had the right, right house, your behaviour really didn't matter. Am I wrong there? Nope, that's exactly correct. You are, you've like hit it on the nail. And um, it's a good segue into kind of then outside of like, um, that was through public school and high school and then into university kind of thing. And, and 
I ended up landing kind of in the corporate world very early on. And if you know anything like I know, I know you do about the corporate world, it's again, it's kind of that same. Oh, yeah. it's very, it's very competitive, very, competitive. very competitive. And so for me, I'm like, well, this is perfect. This is a natural fit. And I remember like going right in and they discussed something uh, known as, I don't know if you'll, you'll know this, but like, what is your brand? Right. And your brand is all about like, how are you perceived by others? How do you show up? And I remember mm-hmm. even going through like rigorous training in terms of like, what is your brand and, and how do you show up to other people? But being so young and also coming from like a community that already kind of practiced this, this became my identity for like, and so I became like overly consumed with like my brand. How do I show up? What do others perceive of me? And it became this obsession with controlling what others thought of me and kind of how they perceive me. And I only let people know what I wanted them to know. And I was only the person that I thought they wanted me to be. And so for me, this is when my drinking increased exponentially. So throughout high school and university, of course, I was drinking very much so social. It helped with my social anxiety or so I had thought. Um, And um, I had slowly over the years kind of noticed that I had a different relationship with alcohol than other people. But I thought like, I don't know, like I just maybe enjoyed it a little more. And then when I was in this corporate world and I was really like, you know, so concerned about my out, how people perceived me and then not feeling emotions and trying to be what I termed as, you know, resilient. The drinking was the only way at the end of the day that I could like kind of come home and unwind. And I think that a lot of people probably identify with that. But the other piece to the drinking was that it let me um, be out longer. I could be social with more people. I could come off as like, you know, I, I was like, you know, the fun person in the room that everyone wanted to talk to. And so I almost loved everything that drinking also brought for me, because as soon as I started drinking, I had more friends, it felt like I had more success, I had more status, Um, the list goes on of kind of all these positive things that it felt like drinking was bringing or doing for me. Yeah, and look, I'm just gonna take it back a bit there. So you said that during, because you're in the corporate world, and we'll get to that. So you're saying that even just to teenagers, because 13 is very young to have the first taste of alcohol. I grew up with, in a very strict household, so I wasn't allowed to do a lot of things as a teenager. Were your parents strict? Were you out drinking, say, at 15, 16? What were you doing in those years? Or were you doing, the, like you said, the sport, the competitive stuff, the swimming and all that? So good question. So um, my parents were, my mom was kind of like the really, really nice one and sweet. And then my dad was the like strict one. And um, so they kind of played like good cop, bad cop. And no, like in terms of drinking, like anything like that was like a huge, huge no. Um, And so what happened is that when I had stopped swimming competitively, because it was taking up so much time, like I was sometimes doing training four hours in the morning, four hours at night. Mm-hmm. And like, then I couldn't hang out with my friends. And so I had told my parents, like, I can't swim anymore. Like I'm in high school, I need to like form relationships and connections and make friends and all this stuff. And so I think they understood the importance of that. And so in some ways, they were then more lenient when it came to the facts. So like, let's say grade 10, for example, 
I was like hanging out with friends more and having a lot more sleepovers. And so they didn't know what was happening when I was hanging out and having these sleepovers, but they were more lenient in terms of me going out more often because they did want me to like form those friendships and things like that. And um, in their eyes, I was, I was making all of these friends, but I was hiding the fact that I was drinking. And so they had no idea early on that I had been drinking that early at least. Yeah. And that's the thing, right? You know, you, <laughs> as I said, my, your parents seem like they trusted you a lot more than my dad trusted <laughs> me at 16. My mum was the cool one. My mum, I used to go to mum and say, can you just talk dad around? You know, I want to sleep yeah. over at my best friends tonight, but she would end up coming to my house because my house was the party house and my stepdad didn't drink. So he was the one that had the eye out always open on, our, on the kids and you couldn't get away with anything if you have a sober parent in the house they're forever watching you and um yes I guess I, I'll put it down to he didn't have children of his own in his first marriage so when he got my brother and I he wanted to do the, the best possible job but that was like zero trust you know it yes was like okay I get what you're doing and I did thank him at 18 but there were times during my teenage years that things weren't ever so thankful um but yeah okay so you're going along this is great you you, you get through high school now, yeah. your college years, because you yes. skipped into corporate, your college years, did things get worse? Well, I would think, hey, it's college years. Tell me about that. It, college was an interesting time for me because I wasn't drinking for the same reasons anymore. So I kind of right. became more comfortable and confident with who I was. Like, I, I kind of mm-hmm. came into college and like, I am who I am. If people want to be friends with me, fine. Um, if they don't, fine too like I can go to school and not have friends I don't it's not a prerequisite (laughs) like was kind of what I told myself and because I was kind of sick of fitting in right which was the initial reason for me drinking like it was Mm -hmm. exhausting to try and like fit in all the time yep yep but then in in university it was more just that like it was the constant where it was like uh, everything all of the activities were centered around drinking and so like you know there would be an event at school and they would bring like they got a liquor license and brought um, alcohol on campus on the weekends. It was the same thing. We were going out, you know, Friday night, Saturday night. It was just like it was constant. Um, and it was the way that we hung out. Like I didn't go for hikes with my friends. I didn't go even to like the shopping mall with my friends. Like we went out and we drank and all of our activities were just centered around that. Um, and then, um, yeah, so so for me, it was just. I think kind of confirming that like, yeah, this is the way that people have fun. And this is the way that we celebrate because we work hard in school and then we play hard on the weekend was kind of the culture that that was. Yeah. Yeah. I hear that pretty much as the standard. And the thing is too, a lot of the, a lot of the students were turning 21 in college. See in where I come from, it was 18. So you know, I don't know, were you allowed to, were they pretty sort of lenient at the age of, say, 19, 20 in college with drinking? Did they just turn a blind eye? Because let's face it, at 18, you really are an adult. Yeah. So, well, for us, the drinking age is 19. Um, right. Okay. Yeah. And so, yeah. So for us, most were kind of that age. I'm born in December. So I've always kind of been like younger than everyone, even in my year. Uh. Yeah, and yeah. the other thing with university that I kind of found unique is that um, 
the program that I did, there was a lot of people that were uh, quite a bit older than me. And so um, I always had to have like, <laughs> I always had like a fake ID, but like all my friends were older because everyone in my classes were older. And so I still kind of got away with it. Um, and it wasn't challenging. Like it, I really didn't find it hard to access alcohol or to get into places where alcohol was being served. Plus I was a female. And I think that that helps like walking into a bar or something like that. Like you're a girl, they see a fake ID. They probably don't care as much. Like, I, I don't know. It's just, I guess a bit easy. I never had a challenge. Let's put it that way. Mm-hmm. It's like kind of getting into places. Yeah. And the thing is at this point in time, you're not really worried so much about how you're feeling, like your deep emotions. Let's face it, this is party time and you are able to drink pretty much at your own choice and time. So you're enjoying life, you know what I mean? And you've and you become that resilient um, young female that your father, and as I said, you know, sort of set you up to be and, and everything was clicking into place. And you've got to, let's face it, you've got to try and get your grades and make sure you graduate throughout all that mm-hmm. too. So... If you're doing it with a hangover, oh, God bless you. You know, I always think, boy, these kids go hard. But when you're younger, you can. You can turn up. I mean, I was working full time before I was 18. And, again, some some nights not sleeping at all and just going straight to the office with a change of clothes. And oh, yes. that's the way you do it when you're young. You know, you just seem to be able to to manage that. So you graduate. And as I said, 19, sorry for this, but she is in another country. I forgot that she's not in the USA. Um, and for me, I was in Australia at the time. So you turn, you graduate, and then do you start working straight away? And, and what happens? Are you with somebody at this time? What's your life looking like after you get out of college? So um, I was offered the corporate job when I was um, in college. And so I had kind of like slowly transitioned to that as I was finishing school. And nice. so there was, well yeah, there's real, and I was doing another part-time job. So I was doing a part-time job. I was in college and then I'd started into the corporate world and they knew that I was graduating soon. So they really only had me kind of like 15 hours a week, but they were ready to like bump me up to full-time as soon as like the day I graduated. And so that's basically what happened. Um, in terms of relationships, I kind of, (laughs) I was also always told growing up, like, you don't need someone else to make you happy, right? Like you don't. And that was Mm -hmm. really my only relationship advice was like, you don't need someone else to make you happy. And so, um, for me, I kind of always looked at relationships as something that was like, maybe just going to get in the way. Um, and it was going to like hold me back from like career success and, and things like that. And so I had one long-term boyfriend kind of in high school and it was kind of the, like, you know, he was on the football team and he was the quarterback and he was like the cool guy. And then it was like, just like not a great relationship at all. And then when that ended, I was like, yeah, like I'm, I'm not really, um, interested in any relationship. And so I didn't have one for years and years and years. Like I, I basically went through uh, college without without having a relationship and I maintained that for years into like my corporate role as well isn't it funny you were saying that you were trying to fit in fit in and when I look at someone that goes out with a quarterback isn't she usually the most popular girl in school <laughs> but isn't it funny how you may have gone out with a quarterback but you still at times felt that you did not fit in so again you know mm. looking the perfect part doesn't mean that in deep inside that that is what you are feeling. It's interesting. It's yes. very interesting. 
And you are obviously very driven, very focused, and you wanted to be the best. That, and that, again, is a very hard, exhausting, long process. And I'm just going to say this because a lot of what I'm, I've got here is that this is one of your quotes. You said, expectations are like resentments waiting to happen. And I yes. found this really interesting. Talk to me about that. So you actually touch on something um, really good. And I think this is a good segue to is that like, for me, I thought being popular, dating the right person or having the right job and all these things, my expectation that all of these things would make me happy because this is the way that success had been defined to me for so long. Right. And so that was my expectation. And then I did those things. Like I became successful. I had the cool boyfriend. I did, I had these things and I still felt so empty inside. Like, I, like I wasn't happy. I wasn't happy at all. And I started to think like, well, what's the point in all of this? Like all these things that are supposed to make me happy, they're not making me happy. And so what is the point? And so I think that's where the resentment piece came in. And this um, saying expectations or resentments waiting to happen is so applicable, I think, uh, especially in sobriety. I mean, I've used it time and time again. But um, yeah, it was just uh, so yeah, to get back to like, just really a lonely feeling. And I think looking back, I think I know that that's true because I wasn't being real or true to myself. So even the connections and the things that I was doing with the friends I was making, I wasn't connecting with them um, in any real way. It was very much a superficial relationship. Such was my life. Like I look back and I'm like, wow, what a superficial life, right? Like you're kind of like doing mm -hmm. the things, mm -hmm. but you're not feeling anything. And I was told emotions aren't good. Actually, like emotions are a sign of weakness. And so not feeling anything was a good thing too. So that superficial life was like, it was perfect. It fit what I was told was, was success and yeah, strength. And that's the funny thing. When you, I know you look back and you think you remember yourself laughing, giggling, going through life. And that was what you thought was a good time, but you're right. It was so superficial. Do you know what I mean? There were times when you're just laughing and carrying on. Even I did it too. And, and then, I truly believe that I was having a good time, but sometimes mm -hmm. I sort of wonder now because if you sat down and you asked some really deep questions maybe to the people that you were with about yourself, they probably couldn't answer them. Nope. You know, it was all of that, so, that top social level of just drinking and just partying. And I, I, I think that a lot of us that ended up drinking in the end were trying to just escape, be numb, and at that time when you're partying, you're not even in that thought of mode. But eventually you sort of get to the point where you're needing to drink more. And if you don't, you're missing it because you're missing the escape. So talk to me about your feelings and the transition between, say, having that good time and then moving on to, okay, now I'm drinking a little bit too much. Um, so for me, it's kind of like, the metaphor for it, but then the actual reality of it was the same in that it was like when the party stopped and the lights went off, I was still drinking. And I, I say the metaphor for it because after university, when everyone else went into kind of like, you know, successful jobs in the corporate world or wherever they ended up, everyone else kind of like slowed down. Like everyone else was like, okay, like that was fun. We had a really great time, but I'm a 
adult now. <laughs> like I'm, I'm going to get my shit together and, and um, stop drinking. But I still wanted to drink. Like I still mm. wanted like every Friday and Saturday night. It was like, Hey, are we going out? Where are we going? And like, everyone else was like, no, like I have work to do or I'm dating or maybe we're, you know, starting a family or whatever their lives looked like at that moment. And I was not ready to let go. And so I kind of found the people that were like me, I think, as we do as drinkers. Yes, and yeah, yeah exactly. <laughs> we seek them out. Yep, yep, yep. <laughs> yep. And so every weekend I hung out with the same people. And it's funny you say this like that superficial and not really even knowing anything about them. It's like I hung out with like maybe I'd say it was like it was still a solid group of people, probably 20 to 30 people and um, on a regular basis. And I can tell you, I know nothing about them. Like I <laughs> know nothing. Like I don't know if their parents are together. I have I have no idea. And I don't know if they had siblings like, and so, but these are the people that I was hanging out with every single weekend. And it, and it's when I realized like, and they weren't really going a lot of places in life. Like, so in our community, um, you know, they probably had like wealthy parents that were kind of taking care of everything and paying for everything for them. So they weren't working, but they, they still had, you know, things. And so, but I was realizing like, um, my relationship with alcohol is very different than most people. I've just seeked out some people that, that I have fun with and that kind of share that same bad relationship. Um, I also noticed like when I was working, I was with a lot of older people as well. They certainly didn't have that same relationship with alcohol. Like I was starting to realize like even a corporate event, like I was having six or seven drinks, you know, and everyone else was having two. And so I started seeing a bit of that. And I also started seeing um, at the time, me, my brother and sister had bought a house together and we were living together. And like, my sister would go home early. My brother would go home early. And like, I would always be the last one home. And then mm-hmm. I'd also be at home still drinking like by myself. Meanwhile, they're in bed. And so there was just a lot of things. And I was like, my relationship with alcohol doesn't look like other people's relationship with alcohol. And were you concerned at that point? No, because for me, I always thought like, this is just something I'm doing now. Like when I'm ready, I'll just start. Um, And I'm like, I just have to get it out of my system. I'm still enjoying it and still having fun because I'm still finding people to enjoy it and have fun with. But eventually that's going to kind of die down. And then like, I always kind of looked at it as like, I always excuse, I'm still in my twenties. I'm still in my twenties. I'm just having fun. And so I, I did, I thought that I still had control over it. I was just still having fun and I would stop when I'm ready. And that's the crazy thing. That's what we believed, that we could stop at any given time. And maybe, look, back then, maybe you had a much better shot at it, you know what I mean, because obviously it's progressive and the days go on and the the years go on. But that's what I believed too. It was like, well, I'm just not ready, and when I am, I'll deal with it. Trouble was, it took me a hell of a It took me a a long, long time because getting ready just took forever. But, um, you know, and and dealing with the feelings and all that, I mean, that still wasn't a part. It was like, oh, I'm not dealing with that. I'm not dealing with childhood. No, 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 just have another drink. And there was always another good time to be had in my world. There was always another good time because I was single for 20 years. I, I didn't get married till I was 40, like I've said before. So I shared houses with people my age. We were all corporates. We were professionals. It was like mm-hmm. if you went home to your brother and sister and had dinner parties every night and you guys put on music and just talked and do you know what I mean? And drank and drank yes. and, and wine was always with dinner. So that was like something to look forward to at the end of, the, of a really hard pressure, you know, 
pressure day. I mean, you'd come yes. home and that was the way of, of unwinding. Um, now, I don't know if you said this to somebody else, but this is a really cool one. It says, you know, about sitting with your feelings and, and I don't know if it's something that you can do. Do you sit with your feelings today? And I'll get back to what we were talking about. I'm just curious. I'm a lot better at it, yes. Like, and I express my feelings now. And, like, before, if I wanted to cry, I would not cry. <laughs> like, I would do everything in my physical power to not shed a single tear. And uh, now I cry. Like, now if I'm sad, I just let it out. Good and I'm totally, totally, like, now in sobriety, I'm totally open with my emotions. Um and just like a quick little story is like, I ended up, um, and I'm sure we'll get into this, like going through a pretty hard time in my life. And like, there was no hiding that. Like I was just a disaster. I was a mess. I was crying all the time. And I remember my dad saying that same thing to me, like, oh, you're so overly sensitive, you know, like, why are you crying? And it did come to a point where I remember sitting around the dinner table and like they had some friends over and I just didn't care. And I was so fed up. And I was like, dad. I am going to express my emotions and how I feel. And you can either support me and be here for me, or I'm not going, I need to distance myself from you. Like it's not healthy for me. Like if I need to cry, I'm going to cry and you're going to accept that or not. But then you're making a point that maybe I shouldn't, you know, be around you as much or during this time or, or whatever that looks like, but no. So I'm actually not only expressing and sharing them, but standing up for my emotions as well. Isn't that funny because daddy found a little daddy in Ashley. Yes. <laughs> you yes. stood up to him against the behaviour and the negativity that he yes. had put on you that you were not allowed to cry. That's how you felt. This was, a, this was a negative wrong thing to do. My mother did the same, things to, same thing to me. I remember being a little girl and I know that she wanted me just to be strong. Yes. And I can remember crying in a movie and she goes, what are you crying for? There's cameras there. <laughs> Talk yeah. about a come down. I just said, is there? I didn't, I was so literal. I didn't even know. I was probably crying on the Bambi or something, but I didn't yes. even know there was there was cameras that made a movie at that stage. You could on your mum, you brought it all undone for me. Sport it for the rest of my life. Never looked at a movie the same way ever again. But no, no, but it's so true. Like they have the like I said, I have this saying, good intention, yeah. bad result. The intention for them to make us strong was good. Because I was yes. a very sensitive kid as well. But you can't just bury everything. I don't think I ever saw my mother cry now I'm thinking about it. And I said that to her and she, she said to me, there's no need. What do you mean there's no need? But then, again, if I look at her mother, I understand that why. There's a saying here also um, that I, I absolutely love this because I feel this way all the time. It says, you're feeling frustrated with being frustrated. <laughs> mm. Yes. And that, and, and that too, that's the frustration of coming because you get to a stage where you're almost, it's not that you don't, well, do you know how to express yourself properly without sounding silly? Because again, you're so conscientious of what you're feeling mm -hmm. that if you tell the truth, you think it's going to come out like, I don't know, that there's something wrong with you, that you're a bit weird. When everybody feels feelings, but you think yes. that it's, Oh, well, I am just sensitive. Oh, God, it's just, just me. And, and no one's going to get this because everybody else seems so together. Do you reckon? Oh, I feel that 100%. I, I didn't feel any different than that until I got sober. And so I lived, you know, 30 years of my life feeling that. And I always felt like no one feels 
like this. Like no one feels these emotions. No one feels this sensitive. No one takes yeah. on other people's emotions like this. Like I'm definitely different. Like, and I never met anyone like me. And to your point, I really couldn't even express how I was feeling. So even if I had met someone like me, I wasn't able to express it and then even bond over it. I didn't have the language for it. And even the word being sensitive had such a negative connotation for me. Like it was synonymous with weakness, right? Being sensitive was being weak. Whereas now in sobriety, I see sensitivity as strength. And I fully and truly believe that sensitive people are the strong people, right? Like, and so um, even just like my vocabulary and definition of words has changed in sobriety such that like, I'm proud of being a sensitive person. I'm, I'm proud of these things now and able to express them versus, you know, the other 30 years <laughs> that I lived in completely a different, different way. I agree. And again, it gets back to, you know, don't define me because you can be empathetic. You can put yourself in other people's shoes. Um, And this is why I believe I truly get on with most people. It's because I never just think it's about me. I want to try and understand you. I have an interest in you because the makeup is basically the same. And you're right. We did a podcast about vulnerability and it is strength. Being able to express yourself and being an understanding person is really quite rare because most people, and I hate to tell you this, but it's true, want to just talk about themselves. It's just all about them. And I know because I I interviewed people for years and years and years, and that is fine. That's fine. I'm learning, but I'm sure that you have friends that have never said, hey, Ash, how are you doing? Because they presume that we're strong and we are always okay. You just hit on something where I'm like, whoa, going to get emotional because... Yes. Like, so everyone always thought like, Ashley's okay. Like Ashley's fine. Ashley, even to this day, to be honest, even in sobriety, when it's like, sometimes I feel like when I tell someone I'm struggling, they're like, yeah, but she's not really struggling. Cause like, Ashley's kind of like, like, <laughs> oh, like in, the, in the sense that it's like, you know, like, yeah, she's having a hard day, but like, I don't think there's a kind of like the, the alarm that goes off. Where it's like, Oh my gosh, we have to like go like support and help actually in the sense that I think I'm still really good at like looking like I have it all together. And in a lot of ways, I think I do now <laughs> truly yeah, do now, yeah. but I think it's more just like, um, yeah, like people make the assumption, like you're okay, you're strong, you're good. And, and rightfully so, because that's kind of the, what I want people to see right instead of inside where I'm like actually like hurting and um and yeah and so and then a part of being vulnerable and 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 the reason why I think this community has been so incredible for me is that like it's a safe space to open up and be vulnerable in and I'm never you know judged for it and so it's kind of like in life where you get that encouragement where it's like, yes, you're doing the right thing. Well, this community did that for me and, and really let me grow and be vulnerable because it was a safe space to do so. And so it was encouraging to continue to be vulnerable and continue to open up, which is why I'm here today doing this podcast. And had you asked me like, you know, eight, nine months ago, I probably would have said, no, I'm not ready. I'm scared. But now I feel safe and I feel comfortable to do so um, in this community and in this space. Yeah, because we read it every single day. People are sharing their emotions and feelings, good or bad, every single day on IAS. And that's what makes it okay. You no longer feel like, oh, 
I'm not weird anymore. This is okay. Wow, this person feels the same way too. I relate to that. I felt that too. And it is safe and it does make you feel like you're okay. And it's such a relief, I think, to know that you're normal. Mm-hmm. And not is. oversensitive, as we tend to get called. And sometimes my husband can say that to me, and um, you can imagine my reaction these days. But I know yeah. that I am. But I don't think it's a bad thing. It means that I take it all in and I can understand a lot more than what people actually think. In March of this year, you you, you um, put this down on, your, on a, a comment, and I just love this. It says, you said, lessons learned, we've learned a lesson about knowing it all. You said we learn every day and you learn that we don't have to do this on your own. And isn't that such a big one? Yes. Because I thought I had to do it all on my own. I love this. Yes. And I think in that post I expand too on the fact that it's like, you know, some days I come and I want to have all the answers to everything, right? Like I want to I know everything um, and be able to deal with things on my own because I've always been taught again, the same, like, you know, be independent. And if you're independent, you're strong, blah, blah, blah. Um, but with this community, it's like, I don't have to have the answers to everything. I can lean on other people and I don't have to do this alone. I can come on IAS and I can read what other people are doing and what other people are learning. I, in some ways, don't even sometimes have to make mistakes myself because I can read where someone else has maybe made a mistake and is coming and posting about it. And so I can even learn from their mistakes and not being alone in this is, is the most important and like the, the critical thing I think in all of this. And like, I know we say like um, connection beats addiction, but truly it truly does because had I done this alone, I don't think I would have made it as far as I have And I, in my own personal life, don't know anyone who is sober and doesn't drink. And so I really would have been fighting a a very lonely battle had I not had this community. I'm exactly the same. I don't know anybody that doesn't drink either. Um, And I was doing it all on my own too. So it saved me like more than you'll ever know. I'm going to tell you a little story here because when I read this about you um, when I was doing my research yesterday, I had a big, big smile. And you will, you'll know exactly what I'm talking about when I get into it. Yeah. Every morning on my balcony, Ashley, I have two doves that come and sit oh. there. And I go out, <laughs> I open the door, and I used to fly off. And, of course, I'd scare them off. Then now I can open the door and I go, ooh, ooh, and I make this little dove noise to them. And they turn around and they just <laughs> look at me like, I'm, who are you, lady? but they come back every single day. And I love it because you on your post, and you can expand on this, that you said that they represent new beginnings and great expectations. And I've just got chills because I reckon that's my dad coming to visit me, but please, I'm going to get emotional myself, but go on. You tell me about your, your little dove story. I love that story and I'm so happy you shared it with us because I do, I do believe like for me, I have this like very strong connection, I feel like with birds. And, um, and so I'll tell you kind of my story leading up to this moment. And it was that at uh, five months, my five month milestone, I was having a really, really hard time. And so I've always had anxiety um, and 
when I got sober, it didn't go away. I know for some people it does. And I know that there's some science behind why that is. Um, and in most cases, it's because drinking actually created and perpetuated anxiety. And so once they stop, then the anxiety goes away. For me, I've always had this condition my whole life. And so it didn't go away just because I stopped drinking. And at right. five months, um, the anxiety got really, really bad. And then for the first time in my life, I developed panic attacks such that I would wake up in the middle of the night, like my palms sweating, my heart beating out of my chest. I wouldn't sleep. I remember one time wanting to um, go for a walk because walks really, really helped me um, kind of clear my head. And I remember mm -hmm. standing at my front door and almost like a state of shock, my feet, like physically, like I couldn't move them. I was having such a bad panic attack. I couldn't get outside of my house. And I remember calling my brother and crying and just like something's wrong with me. Um, that also impacted my work at the time. At the time, I was doing a lot of presentations uh, to executives and things like that. And almost every single one, I was getting a panic attack. My boss had to step up and do these presentations for me. I thought like, I was like, everyone told me that this would get better and easier. And I'm at five months and I'm having a heck of a time right now. And like, mm -hmm. this is really hard. And I can't live like this. Like, I can't live not being able to leave my house and do my job. And so I was kind of at this state where I was like, what's wrong? And I went onto the community. I remember someone posting about, uh, I think it's called pause and like, it could be that and um, some different things. But I basically remember kind of just thinking, you know what, I've read other people's stories and posts, and they've run into challenges. There's no shortage of challenges in sobriety, in sobriety. But what everyone did was they kind of held on and they moved through it and everyone gets through it and so I was kind of like okay if I just wait this out I do believe that it will get better um but after a month of kind of going through that I was like I don't know if this is gonna get better and so um for me what ended up happening was that I was kind of getting to this place where I was like, I need this sign. I need something like something to tell me to keep on going like that. This is worth it. And so, and so for me, um, like I had said, birds kind of show up in my life when I need guidance. It has been my experience. And so I went for a walk with my boss. She had come to see me because she was kind of worried about me. And we went for a nature walk and she knows a lot about um, nature and birds. And I had made, made that call the morning dove call. And I was like, do you know what this this call is like, do you know what type of bird this is? And so she had identified it for me. I went home, of course, I Googled it, researched everything about it as I do. And um, I saw the image and, um, and then not maybe a couple weeks later, did I come to my window and where I live, it's an, it's a new development. And so it's very much a construction zone and there's really hardly any wildlife at all because there's trucks moving all the time and I see this morning dove outside my window and knowing what it was because I had just asked my boss that a couple weeks ago I saw it and instantly I was like I have to look up the meaning behind this and so as you had said yes it stands for new beginnings great expectations and they act as like a spiritual messenger and it said that their role is to help us find inner peace and go about our lives calmly and with purpose and so for me I was like I saw some of this stressful, like the anxiety and the panic attacks as a challenge, but that I was embarking on a new beginning. And then I had to trust in the process and trust that things will get better because they will and to find peace. And so, and it really helped me and it really changed things around for me. And then a couple of weeks into like kind of after my six months, so this only lasted for about a month. Um, 
but it really just gave me that reassurance um, to keep going and it'll get better. And it did. It really, really, really did. And I've only had one panic attack since, and I'm a couple weeks away from a year. So six months later and only one panic attack since. Well, I can um, totally relate because I used to have panic attacks too, and they are just awful. And I've always suffered for anxiety. Fortunately, mine has died down um, in sobriety, but those doves, they do have meaning. And and it was really interesting because I was up at the pool area of my complex the other day, and I swear to God, there was two doves just looking at me on the fence again, not just one. It was really, and I looked at them and I said, actually, here's me talking out aloud in the middle of nowhere. I said, are you two that come to visit me on my balconies? And they're just looking at me and then they just sort of stayed there for a minute and flew off. Anyway, speaking of flying off, we're going to go and get a cuppa for a minute and we will rejoin you listeners in a second and tell you more about Ashley Bear. So just go and get yourselves a cuppa and we'll be right back. Okay, listeners, we are back. That was a lovely cuppa and um, I am back with Ashley Bear 9 and we are going to pick it up about, I looked at her 250-day timeline, and Ashley has some wonderful, wonderful, inspiring sayings. I've, I've made notes here that are just incredible. I really love this one. She said, you take it test by test, not forever or years from now. Just ch- It's almost like challenge by challenge. So please expand on that because that is really, really good. It goes with the one day at a time thing. Yes. And it's funny, one day at a time inspired this post along with, I think, getting sober at a young age. Um, And so the one day at a time for me, for whatever reason, never quite resonated with me in that it felt like I don't want to wake up every morning and thinking like, oh, I can't drink today. Oh, I can't drink today. Um, And so I wanted to think about it just in a different way to kind of understand it in in my own way. Not that I was against this idea, but I wanted it to have more meaning uh, for me. And so when I think about, you know, long-term sobriety at a young age, of course, it it could, if you think about it like that, it becomes very daunting, right? And it's just not a helpful way to think about things. Right. Um, And so I had said, take it test by test and challenge by challenge. We are going to be tested and challenged. Of course, you know, we're going to have really hard days. We're going to have cravings and things like that. And so I also didn't want to take away from the fact that it's not like you don't do the work and you just wait for the challenge and then hope that everything works out. And certainly for me, I think right at the very beginning, it was almost like I had to take it second by second (laughs) because almost the only thing that was on my mind at the very beginning was drinking, right? And so I had to be kind of actively aware of this. And then for me, I really had to be engaged in certain activities. And so when I also posted this, I I mentioned, like, I'm not trying to be complacent and saying that I'm not taking it one day at a time. Um, What I've done instead, is say that I have certain what I refer to as non negotiables. And so every day I do like a stoic reading in the morning, I do some sort of workout or uh, like movement. So it could be either an exercise or it could be yoga, or it could be bodies, it could look different. Um, and I do a meditation. And then for me, I, I attend one of the Zoom calls once a week. And so for, I, I think for probably about seven months straight, it happened to be the Tuesday <laughs> Zoom call, along with kind of others in between. Um, but I do, I, do in, I do make sure to attend one of those at least every single week. 
but outside of that, I just didn't feel the need to engage much in like the sober content um, as actively. And, and this changes throughout sobriety, right? Sometimes I want to dive all in and I want to read everything possible and engage as much as I possibly can. And then sometimes I kind of pull back a little, right? And it ebbs, it ebbs and flows um, in, in that way. And so what I came to the conclusion of for myself is that I also realized that there are certain activities that I can't do, or at least right now. And so that was certain things like, you know, I'm not going to put myself in a situation where I'm engaging in activities all centered around alcohol or just hanging out with certain people that I know are going to be heavy drinkers. They're not going to support my sobriety. They're going to encourage me to drink. They will not respect that. And so in between kind of my non-negotiables and then the I cannot right now I live my life and I love it and you know I say like I joke around I act silly I go for walks I watch stand-up comedy I do all of these things I interact with the community I join zooms I do all of these things that I genuinely truly love and I take everything challenge by challenge um or test by test in that way and and I kind of encourage others to do the same when that works for them in some ways because again my sobriety initially was definitely kind of this this strict schedule and structure that I had to adhere to but once I felt like I was in a good place I let go of that a little bit um and and just kind of lived my life and loved every little bit of it yeah and we do have to you know make life as enjoyable and pleasurable as we can and I try and enjoy my sobriety I try and enjoy when I'm working on it whether it's reading you know watching some YouTube about it love the zooms love interacting I've really got to a point where I'm really enjoying them and love seeing the new people come through and seeing you know the people that you know that you talk to um, on IAS or through other medias or direct mail or whatever it is you know however you connect without being able to physically see the face I mean these things are all terrific but um I don't know if you have you actually been in an environment like do your parents and your family still drink a lot or your friends like on a personal level. So um, I lost a lot of like my friends um, because when I got sober, of course, like a lot of them were drinkers and I didn't want to be around them. And then for kind of other reasons, but um, my family. So it's weird. My my family themselves don't really drink like my right. dad will have one or two. My mom, same thing. My brother and sister, they'll go out on the occasion if there's an event and drink. But like they're typically kind of the people at the table that aren't really drinking. So I was the only one in my immediate family that had that bad relationship. My 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 parents though are really big entertainers. And so they have people over all the time and they throw, you know, like dinners and whatever parties and get togethers so there's certainly a lot of alcohol flowing constantly in their house but they themselves um were never big drinkers well that's good because that provides like a really you know good environment for you not to stress not to have to worry that you'll be the only one not participating and facing questions and all that sort of thing do they know now that you are sober i presume they do that's a good question. So I didn't tell anyone I was sober until I was at six months. The only people that knew were the people in this community on Zooms, Discord, etc. Um, right. I told my brother and sister when I celebrated my six months. My mom, I didn't tell until probably I was closer to like 10 months. And my dad, I still have not told, though he knows because 
it was very rare that I would be at their house without consuming copious amounts of alcohol or show up in some way, you know, drunk. And so he knows, of course, I've just not had that conversation with him. And for me, everyone's different. Um, And I don't know if others kind of share my same outlook on this, but I don't need to share it with him because I don't need his praise um he's he always told me I had a problem with drinking he always wanted me to stop but the same way in which he would tell me like growing up like you can't like don't feel negative emotions don't feel these things he never gave me and not again I don't blame him but he never helped provide any tools or he was never kind of like compassionate and supportive to get me to another place and I kind of felt the same way about drinking it was like well don't do it you should be able to just stop it like you know and have the willpower to like not do it and not let something control you because that's weak if something controls you. And so I almost just like, I didn't need to tell him because I was proud of it myself. And I ultimately really did do this for myself in so many ways. And that's exactly how it should be. You don't owe them anything anymore. You don't need your dad's approval. Um, I can probably vouch for you. When I say to mum, don't tell dad. She always did because that's what they do. But yes. the interesting thing is he hasn't mentioned it to you because we're pretty sure he knows, let's face it, they're, oh, they're yes. married, you know. And that I know to you could be a little bit disappointing and I'm just saying if it was my dad and he hadn't said anything. And I, the only reason I say that is even with, and I've said this before, God bless my husband, he's a great man, love him to death, but he's a normie and for the most part. And yes. he's drinking alcohol free during the week and what have you. But yesterday, being even my nine months, he hasn't said a word. <laughs> and I've got it on a big whiteboard, nine months. And I only get excited at my month, you know, milestones oh. because now, and I'm excited about a year. I can't wait. Ten's going to be great because, again, double digits. Yeah. But every month I get excited. I do because, for me, drinking for 40 years every day, it was a lot. It was part of my life. And yeah. my mum my and dad, unfortunately, will never see me sober, but my family back in Australia have not seen me at all. They've ne- nobody's ever known me sober. Most people probably don't think it's happening, <laughs> to be truthful. Yeah. They're like, oh, yeah, sure, sure she is. Let's see how far. And I, and I know, especially my sister will be like, yeah, let's see how long this lasts. Um, but it doesn't matter what they think anymore. That's the thing in sobriety. You do it for yourself. You're yes. proud of you. You know what it is taken you know and there are other people probably like your brother and sister who are really proud of you that probably tell you all the time and they're the people that matter do you know what I mean like my sister she tells me all the time and she's not drinking she's a real normie she can take it or leave it but you do it for yourselves and that gets back to you know when you were always chasing the next best thing you know the careers the relationship the success because we were worried, especially when we were younger, well, I was, of what others' perceptions of you were. So if you were strong, you had it together, wore the right suits, you know, the hair was done right, the makeup was done right, you were the complete package, then yes. how could anything be wrong with this woman's life? Look at her. Mm-hmm. She takes care of herself. She wears great clothes. She says the right things. She always turns up. She, you know, she's really successful. She's a top performer. You know, bingo. So what if she drinks? And I yeah. mean that really. So what if yeah. she drinks? Because I can tell you in the corporation that I was in, which is global, that most of us were management and salespeople. And I went on a couple of overseas trips for the top performers. And let me tell you, mm-hmm. it was it was like a whole different bunch of people. When the gates were open, 
and it was not work. But then after work, it was still the same. It was drinking down the pub almost at least four nights a week because it was a stressful job and we would work late. Um, so, but if you looked right and you had the numbers, it was acceptable. It's a bit like in, in, in life, you know, people, especially in Miami, it's so materialistic and it's yes. so fake and false. If you've got money, you can be whoever you want. You can do whatever you want. No one cares because the old cliche money talks, unfortunately, really does. It does. Yes. <laughs> it does. Yes. It's crazy. It doesn't matter. You'd be the nicest person on earth. But you can get away with so much more if you've got if you've got money. But that's a whole another tub, another topic. <laughs> I'd rather I'd rather have three authentic friends. Thanks. You can keep your whole Miami crew or wherever you come from. Thank you. Fake to me, you're fake. I, I couldn't be bothered. I'm too old for all that anyway. Um. So yeah. So again, your perception now is, and you still present that way. You're still professional. You still look gorgeous. You do you do your hair, your makeup, whatever. You turn up. You're a fantastic person at work. You haven't changed like that. It's just the alcohol's gone. You know yes. what I mean? And you're probably yes. just a better person and you're more in touch with yourself. So that's great. Um, at the nine months, I love this. You had a beautiful photo of the Niagara Escarpment in Bruce yes. Peninsula. It was yes. a camping trip that you went on. And you said you were doing things out of your comfort zone, which is just brilliant. So tell me a little bit more about these challenges that you've taken on. Yes, for sure. First, I want to say happy nine months. That is incredible. And and I, want to celebrate I was going to say, Ash, how many, days are you at, how many days are you at now? Thank you. Uh, now I'm at uh, 356 days. Oh, well, congratulations to you too. We're doing very Thank well. You. Very proud yes. of us. So go Thank on, tell you. me about this trip. This was really cool. You went on a 30-kilometer hike. I just feel dead oh, just looking at that. <laughs> it was so funny. So me, like I've always had a really strong connection with nature. And when yeah. life kind of gets like very stressful or overwhelming, getting into nature has always been kind of my way of like resetting. And so I knew that this trip um, – was an opportunity for that. And so I really kind of like, I was in a good place in my sobriety, you know, I was feeling good, I was feeling happy. And so I really went into it thinking, okay, what do I want to do with this trip, right? Like, what do I kind of want to accomplish? Also, managing my expectations and not, you know, thinking that the world was going to change just on this trip. But uh, basically, the one thing I had left for me, and I had mentioned earlier in this call was like, I still had anxiety, and my anxiety was still pretty bad, not debilitating in that it was really holding me back from things. But it was like, it was still certainly there. And so I said to myself, like, okay, go be open to whatever, you know, lessons you, you learn on this trip. But the one thing that I wanted to do was get outside of my comfort zone. Because I figured if I did things that maybe scared me just a little bit, that it would help with my anxiety. Like I have this theory and I don't know how true it is. I kind of make it up, but that like we live in this world and, and there is some science behind it. where like, we live in this world of abundance, right? We're not wired for this world. We're, we're built for a world of scarcity where we have to, you know, hunt for food and we have our tribes, et cetera, et cetera. And so right. whereas back in the day, we would have been scared from normal things like a lion chasing us here. We don't have those things, right? Like how often do you truly feel scared or worried or really nervous? Like we get nervous over things like, okay, for me, and I'm just joking with myself, but like, okay, I get anxiety, maybe social anxiety going to the grocery store. Like that compared with a lion chasing us, it seems a little silly, or we get nervous for doing 
presentations. And it's like, I was thinking, but I was like, these are really small things. And maybe it's because as a human, I feel like I should still feel anxiety or feel scared, but then they end up like, it ends up getting triggered by a small thing. So what if I did some of the bigger things? And so I remember, um, yeah, wanting to go on this trip and really test myself. And so that's what I did. And, and it was, yeah, it was quite the hike in, um, and it was very challenging. I refer to it more of rock climbing at that versus even a hike because it was a lot of just like <laughs> yeah, Gosh, I can only imagine. Yeah. It was, yeah. And even at one point, I think I posted about this, there was a um a snake on the trail. And mm. and it was it was very scary, of course. We like I had never come across one before. Um, me and my brother kind of we were, you know, nervous about what to do. We had read about rattlesnakes um, in this it area. Yeah. yeah, it was, yeah, yeah. and said, how it yeah. can be dangerous, right? And so, so I went on the thirty-kilometer hike. I saw the rattlesnake. I climbed up rock formations. <laughs> um, even the beach that we we ended up camping out on um, in the photos looks like a beautiful sandy beach, and it was in fact like giant rocks. The whole thing, so it was very uncomfortable, but that was the beauty of it. Like all of it almost was uncomfortable and I still made it through. Right. And so I think that you can think of sobriety in some, some ways like that too. Like not all of it's going to be beautiful beaches and sunny days. Like sometimes it's going to be hard and sometimes it's going to be challenging, but it's going to be worth it. Right. You end up on that beach and that view is incredible. Um, you learn things about yourself and your resilience and your ability to get through things. And I think I, I even say there like, on that journey, we had stopped at kind of lookout points, right? And you stop and you revel in the beauty of that hike. Um, and you respect and appreciate everything that it took to get there, right? It, like you climbed up that mountain, you walked past that rattlesnake, and you appreciate that. But you don't stop at that, that lookout point, you don't set up camp and say, Okay, I'm done. You keep on going, you take it in, mm -hmm. you appreciate it for mm -hmm. what it is, and you keep on going. And I feel that way in some ways about milestones. And it's actually great that you mentioned your nine month because it's like, yeah, take that time and really appreciate everything it took for you to get there and look out and enjoy the view, but then keep on going. Right. And, um, and that was kind of my lesson from that trip. Um, we get a lot of lookout points along the way, but keep on going. Don't set up camp. This is, a journey. It's not about arriving at a destination. It's about the sobriety is truly a journey. And that's it. You know what? Being uncomfortable, you get through it. Yes. That's a huge lesson there and getting out of our comfort zones. And they're the things that you will remember. And in hindsight, I can remember going camping like you, thinking we have a nice mattress. We didn't. We were on rocks. I was awake all night. It was at a wild animal park. I can hear lions and everything else, but you know what? I still remember it, but I don't, I mean, yes, it was uncomfortable and no, yeah, I didn't sleep and I'm older, but I still remember how fabulous it was to listen to the wildlife at night. You know what I mean? And, and this was in, this was in sort of a, a wildlife park in out of San Diego, California. And that's what the best part of it was. And that is so true. You don't stop. You keep on going. You will be okay. And maybe it'll just be one of the best things that you have ever done. Now, that's where that's this is moving forward a little bit. But I want to go, we're going to go and reflect back now because I want to talk about the tough time. I want to mm. talk about when, you know, you talked about you're working at this point, right? 
and yes. things start to get tough. What happens in your life at that point? What happened <sighs> to make it get tough? So for me, it was a um, couple things, uh, progression of things. So in work, um, I'll just tell you like one thing about myself, even though I kind of had a lot of trouble with like wanting to fit in and being accepted and, and kind of like loving myself in some ways. The one thing I did always love about myself was the fact that I genuinely had like such strong love and compassion for others and like standing up for yeah. others and what's right and loving and, and accepting people for who they are. Like for me, I loved that about me and like, I just loved people. And so I volunteered endlessly as a child and into high school and university. And then, um, and with this passion, kind of like helping people or, you know, supporting and volunteering and my experience and success in the corporate world, it kind of led to this really unique opportunity where I entered into what was at the time kind of a new and emerging space, which was um, diversity and inclusion, um, as well as ESG. So which is like kind of your environmental and social issues within a corporation or the supply chain. And that focuses on um yeah, and reducing environmental risks and the social part of it uh, focuses on modern slavery, reducing human rights risks and things like that. And so I went into the space and I loved it. And I still do. I really, truly love my job and I love what I do for a living. But that combined with being an extremely sensitive person was really challenging for me. And separating mm -hmm. my work from my feelings was really hard. Like, I remember going home every day angry at like the way people were being treated, like just the treatment of humans, the lack of inclusion, like it really angered me. And I, I remember even saying to my mentor at the time, like, I don't understand how people just go home and watch TV. Like, how are people not doing something about this? Like people need to be doing something. And I was really angry that, that, that things weren't happening. Um, and I wanted to fix everything and I wanted to help everyone. But of course, that's not possible. And so like my drinking was the only way that I'd be able to shut off my mind and just be able to like sit and hang out with friends and do normal things. Um, and I remember even like sitting at dinner parties and like trying like telling people the stories of some of the things that we were doing and and all of this. But then at the same time, drinking copious amounts of alcohol because inside I was like really hurting. Um, and so this just became um, a way that the drinking was a way that I coped with, with my work and not separating those things. And I dived right into work and I dived right into drinking. And so both things kind of escalated very, very quickly. Um, and then, and then fast forward a bit into um, kind of COVID time. And so we'll just say in the, in the midst of all of this um, and my career, I did, end up meeting someone and this man that I met um he was the most amazing like like to this day like the most amazing human I've ever met in my life and he just has like a heart of gold and is a beautiful beautiful person but what he did for me in so many ways and I think in hindsight I can appreciate it more was like I couldn't look in the mirror and love myself, but I could look in his eyes and see how much he loved me. And that helped me to love myself, if that makes any mm -hmm. sense. And yeah, absolutely. Yeah. And he really like, like, it makes me a little emotional, but like, he really, um, yeah, did a, um, 
It's yeah. okay, honey. Do you want to take a little break? Um, I'm okay. Um, he did a lot for me, and he was really just like such a bright light for me in so many ways. Um, and I don't think because I still had this thought in my head of like, you know, I don't need anyone to make me happy. The fact that he was doing a lot to make me happy, I still didn't even like recognize or appreciate in that moment. And so, um, and so anyways, it just, it really helped me a lot. And so in that sense, I saw a little bit of light in terms of like, okay, I can like, I can maybe love myself this way. And I feel like I was on the brink of like, I had slowed down my drinking. I had told him like, you know, I do want to stop. I don't think he really knew what that meant to support me in that way because we were still going to like parties every single weekend and being surrounded by alcohol. And so even though actually for a short period of time, I wasn't drinking that much, um, still being around it, it was like, it's like people say like, you can't put down the drink and still live that normal lifestyle because inevitably mm. you pick it up again. Like, and so, and that's yeah. exactly what happened. I lost a week yeah. or two and then I'd be drinking again. Like it just wasn't possible. And then COVID hit. Um, and um, um, actually, sorry, right before COVID hit back in October, 2019, um, we had gone through something uh, fairly, fairly, fairly traumatic in that we lost a friend in a traumatic way and that set off a series of losses. And so um, we had, and a couple of these guys being like, you know, 26, some in their thirties, um, just a series of friends we lost in a very short period of time. And in our small friend group that triggered a lot of bad things too. Like people just really didn't have the capacity to cope with all of this. And like, it ended up being like some people, you know, had to go to rehab. Some people were um, institutionalized. Some There was a suicide. There's just like a lot of bad stuff in a really short period of time. And so any hope in heck of me stopping drinking, that wasn't going to happen. And and on top of the one loss, it um, in some ways uh, compromised our safety in some ways. And so we ended up hanging out as a group uh, very often together um, and just drinking. Like every day we would get together and drink and get together and drink. And like, and we would, you know, I remember saying this thing, it's like you pour out some alcohol for like the loss of this person is like, you know, the, the way we grieved was through drinking. We never talked to each other. We never expressed how we were feeling. We just drink and then COVID hit and and uh we went from kind of being isolated in our group of drinking and for lack of a better word grieving to now being locked in our homes and having zero support and trying to get through what COVID was um fast forward a bit through that and my fiance at the time ended up um having a really 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 hard time and I didn't uh, recognize it for what it for what it was and I thought that he was just like angry or falling out of love with me or or something like that and I really started taking it personally I started feeling really down on myself like I wasn't good enough so my drinking increased again like a lot like I was I was drinking a lot of alcohol every single day and with COVID you could because you didn't have to leave the house or be anywhere or get in the car or do anything and um I ended up saying to him like, okay, you don't seem like you're in a good place. I thought he just needed to cool down. Maybe he was angry about something, not realizing that the impact of COVID and the loss of all his friends and all of these things. And so I said, I'm going to go to my brother's house for a week and I'll be back. 
And I never came back. We didn't have that opportunity. Um, and so I stayed at my brother's house for almost a year. And in that time, uh, so about eight months. And in that time, my drinking was just horrible. I would wake up at 10 a.m. and start drinking until I passed out at maybe 9 p.m., 10 p.m. and start over the next day. I was drinking upwards of probably 17, 18 drinks a day, like give or take. It was a lot, a lot. Um, and it wasn't getting better. And I was just a disaster. And so COVID really, I think in one of my posts, say kind of, well, alcohol in general highlighted a lot of issues and made me see my drinking for what it really was. And I think that so many of us, even though we say we just drink on the weekends or we're just been drinking or just drinking with friends, if you have that relationship with alcohol, it can end up in this dangerous place very quickly. And if not quickly, it's progressive and it often ends up there anyways. And that's exactly what you said. I'm sorry for the loss of all your friends. They're so young. It is so sad what addiction is doing to so many people. And it's it's not even, you know, if the addiction is one part, but with that comes all the mental health issues as well. It, can be depression and anxiety and just you know just becoming overwhelmed with life in general and you did say how the pandemic acted like a giant highlighter and again another one of your beautiful cliches because it did exist issues I know with myself that was when the floodgates were open wasn't it I was like you it was like well it's COVID I'm in lockdown what do you want me to do <laughs> but again yes. I know it was just an excuse for me to make it all right to drink at 10 in the morning or put scotch in my coffee or whatever the hell I was doing and then just sit around all day and slowly slip on my wine and you know I mean it just became the norm and I knew I knew way before that that I had a, a huge problem but this was my life and I'd yes. accepted it this was my lifestyle I'm not working anymore I don't answer to anybody um husband was still working from home so his door was shut you know most of the time for most of the day except for lunch and off I went you know I had I was accountable to nobody and I didn't want to be accountable to myself it's it, and it does it just and I thought and again even then I thought I can stop when I want to yes isn't that the craziest thought because I'd never tried to just stop um yeah look it's it's interesting you know it's it's oh, just the whole thing just no wonder why I get frustrated. And again, you know, when you said you were angry about the, the work issues that you deal with, a lot of that too is passion. And a lot of people mistake yes. anger for passion. Yes. Um, yes, you can be, you can have your own anger about it. But passion is when you really, really want to change something or you're passionate about something. You want to continue on with it. You want to do it to the best of your ability. You want to make things better. You know, even if you're writing the song, if you're passionate about music, you want to write the best song you can. You want to produce the best music you can. So, um, you know, I think people often mistake, I think, yeah, a lot of the time they do even with me saying that I'm angry when I'm actually passionate about things. <laughs> but that's a whole, that's a whole other thing. <laughs> um, then you move on um, and you basically, you we're still in lockdown now. Your brother you were with for a year. I thought you were in lockdown when you were with your ex-fiancé. So how did you get to mm -hmm. your brother's? Because we weren't supposed to be going anywhere unless he was 
Yeah. Did you so, sneak? Did you sneak out like a little <laughs> little teenager? I don't know. Sorry. You know what? Um, I mean, that's a good question, actually. But COVID was weird here in that it kind of had like a slow, um, like there was kind of like one person everywhere. Ash, don't worry. Come to Miami. Yeah. There was no lockdown. Was like just a free for all to do whatever you wanted as long as you wore a mask. But anyway, oh yeah. Go on. No, yeah, and I remember, like, I mean, um, yeah, it was so sure. And I remember actually, like, I mean, I think you remember at the beginning of the pandemic, and still now, there's a lot of like fear mongering and things like that. Oh, like, yeah, sure, yeah, yeah and yeah. I we didn't, know, we didn't know what was going on. <laughs> no, and like, I remember even leaving that day, and I was uh, in a condo with my ex, and I was scared to go <laughs> into the elevator. Like, here I was, everything going on my whole life, like you know changing not that I knew it at the time and I was like scared to get in an elevator because of COVID and I remember going down and yeah my brother being outside and I got into his car and I just went over and um I think we were in uh I think we had a curfew at that time but there wasn't a stay-at-home order so I kind of like I got away with it (laughs) snuck over it does it does sound like you're grounded and we were I'm the yes. same in the elevators. I had people, even when we didn't have to wear masks, I had older people telling me, you should wear masks, you should wear masks. I feel like saying, you should mind own business. I'm vaccinated. <laughs> yes. But God bless them. Look, it did. It threw everyone into a, a, whirl, a, whirl, a whirlpool of whatever, and now we know that we just have to live with it. But anyway, so go on. So you and your brother, uh, yeah, well, there was your, there was your ex-fiance saying, uh, are you ever coming back? <laughs> like. It's I know kind of a long time to be gone, you know, just quietly. But yeah, so things were obviously things were obviously tender, and you had whatever was going on there with that. But yeah, so move on from there. Yeah, and so um, so what ended up happening? So it's very challenging because yeah, so I like I remember like me and my ex had gone together a week later because I you know like I was trying to be very like rational about things like oh let's talk and communicate and like try and figure things out. The issue was much bigger than our relationship. There was no issue with how much we loved each other and wanted to be together and things like that. There's a lot of other issues, unfortunately. And so the reason this was really hard for me is that I've never experienced something like this. And so when I was at my brother's, I think I didn't recognize that what I was doing essentially was grieving, but I didn't understand what I was grieving because I mean, this person was physically still here. Right. And so Mm -hmm. um, that was really challenging for me. I think I recognize in a very practical way that what I'm going through right now might very well be the hardest thing I'll ever embark on in my life, um, or at least it was at that time. And so I got a therapist right away. Like I started seeing a therapist and everything was virtual. And I'm kind of embarrassed to say, like when I was first seeing her, I was completely wasted. Like I was drunk on the call. I was doing hour sessions with her. And I was You drunk. would not be the first, my dear. You no. would not be the first, <laughs> especially in lockdown. <laughs> yeah. Because I was in so many ways, like medicating just like this, like this utter sadness. Like I just, I couldn't, that's the one uh, emotion I really have trouble dealing with. And so I was kind of like, okay, you need to fix me, but I'm going to still drink until I feel better. (laughs) And so, um, yeah, I started seeing her and she kind of, you know, she didn't give me the answers that I wanted to hear, but it was nice to still talk to someone and express it. What she did do for me is I'm very much like a nerd and I like to know like the science and what's happening in my brain and things like that. So she described a lot of that to me. Um, when I was getting into these like kind of like 
almost like manic episodes she would explain like what's happening and then kind of knowing it's like therapists say like name it to tame it so mm-hmm. once I knew what was happening I could almost accept it I remember journaling a lot even when I was drinking and it's like if I ever consider picking up a drink all I have to do is pick up that journal and read <laughs> my irrational thoughts drinking at that time and it's enough to scare me not to go back to drinking um mm. yeah it was just uh it was a very 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 hard time other strange thing I kind of did at that time um is like I would take selfies of myself when I was like um drinking like that and then crying because I almost wanted to like look back maybe the next morning when I sobered up to remember like how bad of a shape I was in to scare myself and Mm -hmm. I developed this really like heartbreaking relationship with alcohol in that when I started drinking I would have this like almost out of body experience where I would look at myself in the mirror and I would look at myself like I feel really really bad for you that your life feels so hard to manage right now that you have to drink this much and like I genuinely was like really sad for myself but I didn't know how to stop and I had become an expert in life and hiding things and showing up the way I thought others wanted me to show up so even living in my brother's house he had no idea how much I was drinking like I knew once I got to a point where um maybe like he would be able to tell because I wasn't talking properly I wasn't acting properly like I would just go in my bedroom when he came home and completely avoid him um and truthfully got to the point where like I was drinking so much and I became so good at hiding it I could be like eight nine drinks in and he would have no idea that I was even drinking like it just I became so good at lying yeah and our tolerance has just developed with the more that we drink too. But it yes. amazes me how, how many people have said to me, they had no, no, no idea. Well, it's funny, sober now, because I can look at some, somebody and I know straight if they've been drinking. Um, yes. Isn't it interesting? Isn't it? And it, but yet when we're drinking, we think we're invisible. We do. We think we're mm-hmm. invisible and we think we've got it together and we think that nobody knows that we're drinking. But do they really? Yeah. I mean, yeah. really. And they just don't say anything. I often wonder that because let's face it, alcohol makes you intoxicated. There is a point in time when, like you said, it affects you know the way you talk, the way you move, the way you are, your expressions, you get louder, you repeat yourself. There are so many aspects to what alcohol does to you that it's hard to hide. Yes. Um, especially if you've got um, an expressive personality. And I know, even with my husband now, and he even yesterday went out and came home last night and said one thing to me, and I know where he was. I knew it was a golf day and I knew he'd been drinking. But I would have never have noticed just the slight change even when I was drunk because I was worse than him probably. And we talk a lot when we're drunk and we talk a lot when we're sober. So, you know, we probably never got a word in the poor guy. But (laughs) It's interesting now with clarity how you can just see things a, a lot clearer. And I just wonder that were we really invisible um, and how, yeah. how well did we hide it and did that person really know? But maybe we'll never, ever, ever know. So did you have I'm, – I'm, and the thing you said about the mirror, that was my rock bottom when I looked in the mirror and I said, you are dead. I don't see you. Yeah. I can't connect to you. Your eyes yes. are dead. You're already dead. 
you better get your shit together. Otherwise, you better start digging. Get yourself a or get yourself a pizza oven because you're going in there. You know, like yeah. One, I was I was dead anyway, and I was going to die, and that was that was it for me. What was your defining moment? As I like to call that, that is a defining moment. That because that's that's the one and the the, the moment. Yes. It, um, so my defining moment was there was a couple things leading up to it. Like you said, like looking in the mirror and then to your point about my brother, like he did know I was drinking. I just don't think how much. And he did end up saying to me, if you want to, and keep in mind, like my best friend in the entire world is my brother. And, um, he said to me, like, if you want to hang out with me or be around me or my friends, you can't drink anymore. And so, he was saying that he would cut me off if I continued to drink. That wasn't enough to make me stop. I just got better at hiding it. <laughs> but um, right. but that and that's what it does. That's what addiction does. You yes. find another way. This is why it's yes. exhausting. Exactly. And and that's when kind of everything came to a head. I actually we had a fire in his backyard with all his friends. I drank so much that night, and I remember um, waking up the next morning and. Um, okay. So the night before I had gotten a message from my ex fiance and he had been having a hard time, but he said like, I want to, we were building a property. And so he wanted to go check it out the next day. But I remember mm-hmm. seeing that message and being too drunk to even respond. Like I couldn't even type, like I was just so far gone. And then I woke up the next morning and I had messaged him back saying, yes, let's go. Let's go. And a couple things happened that morning. I felt I know most people like after they have a night of drinking, you wake up the next morning, you feel really almost like depressed or like it felt like this enormous sense of guilt. And it felt like something was like sitting on my chest, like physically weighing down on me. And I remember thinking like, if this is what living feels like, I don't want to live anymore. I didn't want to. Uh, yeah and I didn't want to die like I wasn't suicidal or anything like that but I did not want this life and the amount of alcohol I was drinking like I wasn't also going to last that long probably anyways and it felt like it just it was just too much and so I kind of looked at my life in that moment I was like I have two roads right now and I can choose one of them one is do something change something and put down the alcohol and stop drinking. And maybe there will be a chance at a different life. You know, hopefully it'll be better, but it will be different. And maybe you should explore that or go down this other road. And you kind of know what this looks like. It's going to be more of waking up and feeling like this, and it'll probably get worse. And it'll probably get to the point where it's not bearable anymore. And alcohol won't be enough. And I said to myself, I don't want to know what it feels like when alcohol isn't enough anymore, where I can't drink enough to shut out these feelings in the way that I'm feeling. Um, And so and then and then a combination of the fact that I wasn't able to support my ex that night. And like, I'm like, I want to always be there for people. I want to be someone that people can rely on. And if I really wanted to like, rise up and step up and help and support someone, like I couldn't do that with the way that I was drinking and I needed to like get a handle on my life. And so I'd like to say that that was the moment that I didn't drink, but I drank that day to get through that day, but it was the next day. And that was October 19th. And that day I went on my phone and I searched AA meetings and there was nothing really in my area that I felt comfortable going to. I looked in 
the city of Toronto. I couldn't really find anything that I wanted to go to. And I was like, you know what? I'll start by just downloading IAS. I had found this app. It would track my days and I will commit to at least starting and tracking my days. And I haven't had a drink since. Well, congratulations. See, smart young lady. And you are (laughs) smart because you woke up so much quicker than I did. And, you know, and look at you now. I mean, the la- your last post, and this is what's terrific. But before we get to that, I want you to, this is really cute. I want you to talk about maybe your brother with the Christmas tree tradition, uh, tradition and lights. Remember that post? Yes. The magic is in sharing. Oh, God, please talk about that. This is beautiful because, hey, Christmas is around the corner. It's holiday season. Yes. So I've always had an issue, no surprise, with like, sharing and being vulnerable and it's why this podcast was you know initially very scary for me um and it's something that I've always wanted to do more of because I've seen other people open up and share in the rooms on zoom and things like that and I've seen how it's really had a lot of kind of healing properties for them um and so and then the other part for me is like kind of like just the whole fear around it right and and um it's like I've tried to even be open and vulnerable with people, but like this wall goes up. It's like a physical wall. I hit the wall and I can't go any further. Yep. And I want yep. to so badly, but I can't. Um, and so, yeah, I went on a hike with my brother and we went through, it used to be an old kind of Christmas tree farm. And so there's acres and acres and acres of Christmas trees. And we were talking and I was like, I wonder what the tradition is of like a Christmas tree and specifically putting candles in a tree because I knew that they put candles before lights. And I was like, it just sounds very dangerous and just not safe yeah. in so many ways. So like, <laughs> what? <laughs> Who was the crazy person that Sorry, mom and dad didn't mean it. <laughs> yes, exactly. Oh, yeah. <laughs> so I Googled it and they said like, it's believed that Martin Luther, a Protestant reformer, was walking yep. home one winter evening and was awed by the brilliance of the stars twinkling amidst the evergreens. And he wanted to share that scene with his family. And so what he did was he erected a tree in his main room and wired its branches with lighted candles. And I, my brother read that to me actually while we were walking through. And it's when it clicked for me that the magic in life is in sharing. And yeah. it's, it's not about, you know, what makes other people happy as I had been living my life, you know, showing up in the ways that I thought they wanted me to, or even I've had a problem where it's like, if I'm feeling really low or angry, I'll kind of hide in my house and not interact with anyone because I don't want to show up when I'm like that. I only want to show up when I'm happy because I want people to believe that I'm just always happy. Right. Um, And I realized that, that joy and deeper human experiences are in sharing, sharing, our happy moments, our experiences, but then also in sharing our fears and our insecurities and our grief and actually being open and radically honest. Um, And I think that I also learned in that moment that to learn deeply about another and to not be afraid and resist that they actually learn deeply about us because there's an undeniable truth that vulnerability is what brings people together because it is in those moments that someone else is vulnerable, that we see our own vulnerabilities in them. And that's ultimately what connects us. Yeah, and we see some of them in ourselves as well. And I truly believe that sharing, um, especially like with the Zooms, it is therapy, period. Yes. Yes. You talk and you listen. 
and that is what therapy is about. Uh, the fact that the, the, if the advice is given, it's only recommended most of the time by people, but it's presented in a way that you can take it or leave it. I learn a lot from everybody, and I think that everybody has something to offer. Yes. And you can always sense when somebody in the room, I have a great belief that somebody is always worse off than me, or so I know that they're worse off than me. Yeah. And if I sense that when I go into a, a breakout room, which is a smaller room for you listeners that we break off into the groups of three or four. And you can just tell if somebody needs to share and somebody needs to talk. And for them, I guarantee they get off and they feel so much better. My experience, and I've only ever been to a therapist once, was she sits there, tells me why am I here today, sits there, looks at me, listens, doesn't say much. And I realized about 10, month, 10 minutes into it that this is how it's going to go. So I start asking her questions and it turns into me interviewing her. That was my therapy. So I didn't really get anything out of it, to be honest. Yes. Yeah. But, um, but I get so much more out of Zooms. And the thing is, you can bring up any subject. Nothing is, nothing is out of the realm. And this is why even with the women's Zooms, um, mm. they're terrific, you know, because women talk about different things in fact last week we were talking about mothers and daughters and that is a big subject a big subject you know and the guys can probably talk about in their zooms father and son relationships and all those sorts of things so no matter what it is the fact that we're communicating connecting and understanding is just how the world is going to be a better place and why we keep coming back it gives so much and that is that's the joy that we derive from being there don't you think A hundred percent. And once I started attending those Zooms, which I kind of did actually pretty early on in sobriety, um, I stopped seeing my therapist and not to say that this is for everyone, but for me, um, the Zooms served more. I got a lot more out of the Zooms than I ever did in in my one-on-one therapy session because just like I didn't also love the idea of like, if I was in a good place that day, I didn't want to see my therapist and then her try and dig into some of the things that like, because I didn't feel the need to visit those things that day. Right. And, yeah, and, yeah. Yeah. And like, Zoom, <laughs> if I'm having a good day, I can like come and be like, you know, I'm having a good day, <laughs> like you know, and that's okay. And if I'm having a bad day, I can come and say I'm having a bad day, but there's no pressure to be anything, be anyone, like show up in a certain way. It's, just show up as who you are today and share that. Sometimes people yeah. want need to hear that positive message from someone else or, you know, it's just, it's so amazing. And that's it. You just show up how you're feeling at that particular moment. And what I found with Zooms is that, and I've said it before, when I don't feel like going, like sometimes I just feel like, oh, you know what? I'm not really up for this. When I mm-hmm. go and I turn up and I actually get off the Zoom, I feel so much better. It's some of the best Zooms that I've ever had. Isn't it interesting? So, you know, when you feel like not connecting listeners, that's the time you probably should connect, let's face it, Um, because you will feel better because, I mean, we're not always going to feel great. I understand that. Life is a roller coaster. We're hit with normal things in life. But, you know, we deal with them. And um, what do they say? A problem share is a problem solved, something like that. Anyway, I know know that you talk about worrying and I I don't want to, I don't want to worry you too much about worrying, if that makes sense. We all worry, 
But yes. do you feel like you're actually now got that more under control? Because you talked about closing the mental bulkheads. This this was really funny. Yes. <laughs> and um, living in the now. Go on. Just, just say, tell me how you're handling just living in the now and how that's come yeah. about for you. So for me lately, it's been something that I really had to focus on, like being present and living the now is no new concept. And I'm sure everyone's heard it before, but it doesn't take away from the fact that it's it's the same as sobriety. You don't arrive at living in the present and then just stay there and do nothing to help stay there. Like it's continuous practice. And, um, yeah, so so more recently for me, like I ha- I just got a new job. I started a new role about three weeks ago. I um, I Congratulations. Really- yep. Thank yep. you. Um, I wasn't really sleeping. I wasn't eating properly. It was the first week I had missed a Zoom in months and months and months. Um, and so I just like, it was a lot of things. Like I had moved away from what I had mentioned earlier, like my non-negotiables. And I don't think I realized how crucial those things are in practicing every single day and and meditation for me is really the one thing that brings me to kind of the now and the present more than anything else that and then like yoga or like some sort of exercise because I'm very focused um and then and then um yeah and so I kind of got to this point where I was like really overthinking things worrying like about the past like oh my gosh why did this happen why did this have to happen to me and then worrying about the future like what do things look like are things going to get better and things like that right like um and so I just found myself like continuously worrying and I remembered meditation for me is not just a moment in like sitting down and actively practicing it uh early on in my sobriety I had like read a lot about it and I was kind of like acting like this monk in that like I would have a full day on Sundays where I would clean my house but I would have to do so in a meditative state and I wouldn't listen to words uh, songs with lyrics and like I really got all into practicing um kind of these like rituals and so I remembered that and so for me stopping worrying and getting into the present was really like when I washed the dishes I focused on that and that was washing the dishes when I sat down and ate my meal I put down my phone I actually turned off my phone and I would sit down and eat my meal and like I looked out the window and I felt the breeze and I would listen to the birds chirp and like really just like noticing all these things Um, but putting down my phone truthfully had such a profound effect like just having it off and and for that hour two hours really really made a difference for me as well and that's mindfulness, isn't it? Just being able to yes. sit and take it all in. Yes. And just yes. and that's what I do. You know, sometimes I have on the river here. I live in the manatees. As we were just chatting before, I saw the mum and the little baby was riding on its back, and oh, you could just see how they were developing this bond. And it, they're so beautiful. They're so calming and relaxing for me. And that's what the water does for me. It calms and relaxes me. Whereas. I don't have a mind that can just sit still. So, you know, find what works for you. Um, And for me, it's music as well. I love my music. But that's a bit more when I'm sort of want to get motivated and get hyped up. I'm not very good with sad songs. And I like you. I find sadness. um, I cry at the drop of a hat, although a lot of people wouldn't know that too. And, again, I wasn't allowed to. Mm -hmm. But, you know, there are emotions that, you know, and how much do we have to get them under control, really? Is that such a problem? If that's the only problem I've got, um, as far as the good emotions, then so be it. 
uh, yes. the frustration or the anger and the impatience, they're the problem. They're the ones that I need to get under control more, you know. <laughs> but then everybody has a level of that. Look, I'm passionate. What could I say? So, yes. as I said, as this young lady who's woken up, who's on this beautiful sober journey, what would you tell our listeners as far as just what you've learned, any tips, just, stay, just anything before we go? What would you tell them? Hmm. I guess I would say find what works for you. Like for me, what was so important is really just kind of like acting like a sponge in so many ways. And that like, I would just like, you know, I would read all the posts and I would listen to everyone and I would always be open-minded, but I Mm -hmm. wouldn't take what everyone says as something I need to do. I would take, if there was a hundred ideas thrown at me, I would maybe try 10 and keep three you know what I mean? And I, I'm never, I'm never against trying something. If it's not going to hurt me, it could help me. Um, but at the same time, like taking everything on, especially early on in sobriety can be extremely overwhelming. Like there's no shortage of books to read and, you know, advice to hear and all these things, but it's really like, do what works for you and question yourself along the way. Like, is this hurting me or helping me like even sometimes like I love commenting on IS and reacting to people's posts and because most times I wake up in the morning and have my coffee and I find that very therapeutic for me and like it really gets me thinking about different things and opens my mind to new mind to new ideas but if I find that I'm going about my day and trying to work and balance this and that and then also go on and respond okay this that day it's not working for me I need to put down my phone and there's an entire community for everyone else and so it continuously checking in on yourself and saying like, is this working for me or is it not? Um, would kind of be, I guess, my words of wisdom. Yeah. And I know, I know you said something about spicing up your sobriety, which is a terrific <laughs> term. Yes. <laughs> and again, it does, it gets back, doesn't it? Just to, just to do a bit of a self. And I do that. I tend to do that every month. And I, I don't know about you, but I don't, think about alcohol on a daily basis I just go about my day now and this is what was the biggest wish for me was just to feel normal and to be able to go about my day without it being relevant in my life and I've said this term and I say it a lot alcohol is irrelevant to me I've said it from day one when I didn't have anything else to grab onto I didn't know what I was doing so I thought I've got to get myself a little mantra and just tell myself and you can retrain the brain which is what I've done I found a new way to detour all the old thoughts and just now have these thoughts of, you know, where I've put the attic place and I've put it in a place that it is not part of me. And if it approaches, then it knows what it's going to get because it doesn't want us communicating. It doesn't want us on Zooms. It doesn't want us connecting. It wants Mm -hmm. us isolated and alone and all to itself. And that's where we were. And I, like you, I'm afraid to go back to the first couple of weeks of when I started on this journey. But Mm. like you said, when you're uncomfortable and you go through it, there is always something so much better on the other side. I really believe that. And in all of it, it's just chapters in books. I look at my life as a book and I turn the chapter because I knew one day I'd have to face this. I just didn't know how. So now I'm I'm, I'm writing a book and and the end's going to be terrific, you know? Mm -hmm. Yes. Yes. We can have hope now and look forward to our futures. We do. Is there anything else you want to add, Ash, before we say goodbye to the listeners? And 
No, I think uh, we covered a lot today. I just want to say thank you so much um, for, for taking this time with me. And I just want to thank the community because without everyone, I certainly would not have made it this far. And yeah, I just really want to say thank you to everyone. And I would echo that. I want to say a big thank you to IAS and to um, Sobertown uh, podcast and the website. Everybody is doing a fantastic job there. As I said, it is a one-stop shop for everything to do with sobriety. You can listen to wonderful stories like Ashley's when it goes up. There are so many things there, the tools, everything. The IAS community, I could not live without. So I love you all very, very much. And listeners, please have a lovely day. And like our friend Drifter says, pour the poison down the sink and um, for me, I'm going to say goodbye from King 13 and for my wonderful guest too. I just want to thank so much. She is an inspiration. And I know that there's just huge things ahead from her for her in this life. So would you like to say goodbye? Yes. Thank you so much and take care. Okay. Bye listeners and take care. And as I said, pour the poison down the sink and I will hear you or talk to you next time. Bye.